0: You're listening to a sermon from Redemption Church, Calgary North. We exist to see lost people saved, saved people matured, and mature people multiplied, all to the glory of God. For more information, visit redemptioncalgarynorth.com. All right, you can have a seat. Um... Hopefully you've seen that. There's a new, uh, we're calling this uh, the seed, the promise of redemption. Uh, We're going to be continuing to study Genesis 3, but we're going to be using it as a launch pad um, into uh, our study of uh, God's redemption for us and the result of that. Things that we focus on in the season of Advent, love, joy, peace, hope, Uh, it's all a result of uh, Christ's coming And uh, and it springs from the hope and the promise that we're going to read about this morning. If you're joining us online, I just want to welcome you. And uh, if you want to let us know that you're joining us uh, through uh, the app that you're on, that would be great. Well, um, we've uh, we've been in Genesis since uh, September, and we've got all the way to chapter three, and uh, we we've been. We we've, we've been thinking about um, just how awesome our God is. Uh, we see chapters one and two that He creates this world that's very very good. Uh, it's a world full of blessing, a world full of provision, and um, God in every way has cared for His people. Uh, there is uh, no reason to rebel in this world. There there is uh, God has given them everything that they need uh, to, to humanity, and yet. Uh, As we've read about the last couple weeks, man does rebel against God. He does sin, and uh, as a result of that, there is uh, now separation from one another. There's separation from God, and uh, as we've seen last week, there are things like blame shifting, right? It's not my fault that I sinned. It's somebody else's fault. Uh, There is um, throwing one another under the bus, right? Uh, Adam blames Eve, and uh, Adam blames God. Eve blames Satan. Of course, that still people still do that today. Uh, we all like to think well of ourselves, but uh, the fact is, when we sin, we only have one person to blame, and that's ourselves. And um, and so uh, we, uh, as we as we're getting into this, as we think about this, we're gonna we're gonna see that that sin isn't just a small problem, right? If you've been in the church for any length of time, uh, actually, if you've breathed life for any length of time, you can see that sin is a major problem. People call it different things that may be in this world, but uh, the Bible tells us that sin is um, the problem that, that all of us have, and sin causes all kinds of destruction. And yet, we still race after it. I was thinking about, again, just thinking about the destructive, destructive, destructiveness of sin. And, and just what it promises and what it gives, it promises intimacy, but results in hate. Sin promises happiness, but brings depression. Sin promises pleasure, but brings pain. Sin promises freedom, but brings enslavement. Sin promises fulfillment, but brings emptiness. Sin promises life, but brings death. And that brings us back to our text in Genesis 3 this morning. God had warned Adam and Eve that if they ate from this tree, um, that they would die. And the consequences of that were not simply that they would lose their life, but that there would be um, so much more pain and misery in this world as a result of what they have done. As we think about God's commands, I wonder sometimes if if we just see them as restrictive rather than what they really are, that they are good. God, as we've learned in chapters 1 and 2, was the one who created the world. He knows how it is to operate, what, what is the best way for it to function. And so when he says, don't do this, guess what? That's what is best. And so he has warned Adam and Eve out of his love for them not to do this. And yet they have rebelled and they are walking in sin. Sin must be judged. We're going to see that this morning. We're going to see the beginning of the judgment for their sin. He's going to do it in reverse order. First, um, when he came and and dealt with him in the garden, he talked to Adam, and then he talked to Eve, and then he just goes straight to the serpent. And the serpent will be judged first, then woman, then man. And as a result of what they've done, the curse will come upon this earth. But I want us to think about, as I mentioned, not just about the curse of this day in Genesis 13 and 14 and 15, we're also going to see there's a promise on this day. Uh, Paul Tripp puts it like this, God meets the rebellion of sin with the only thing that has the power to defeat it, the birth of his son so we're going to, for the next few weeks, we're going to use Genesis 3, 14 and 15 as that kind of a launching pad. We're going to go back to it. We're not going to study it exhaustively, 14 and 15 today. Uh, we're going we're gonna to touch on it, and then we're going to come back to it again next week and the following week. And from that, we're going to look at what was it that God was doing through this promise. This morning, I want us to focus on the fact, what would motivate God to make this promise in the first place. Why would he make a promise of hope on a day where humanity had rebelled against him? Well, the answer to that is that God is love. Not not, not just that God is loving, but that God is love. He is the very definition of love. And so because of his character, because of who he is, he's made this promise that we're going to learn about this morning. So let me pray for us, and then we're going we're gonna to get into it. Lord God, we thank you so much for this time together in your word. And God, we thank you that you are love. This morning, if we have any love in us, it's because of you. Lord, um, you are the definition of love. And Lord, we, we pray this morning that we would grow in our love, Lord, for you today as a result of our study of the word god we we pray that, because you have loved us, that Lord we would love others, and that we would bring you honor and glory as a result of the way that we would love others this morning as we think about your love, really it is um, beyond our comprehension really God, but God, we would ask Lord that you would help us that you would help us to to grow in our understanding of you, and that, God, um, Lord, you would help us to love not just those who love us, but, Lord, Lord love our enemies and love the lost And as, as we go from this place, and that, Lord, uh, you would use this time to further your glory. It's your name we pray. Amen. All right, so... Uh, you need a Bible. If you don't have one, go ahead and slip up your hand. We're going to be looking at Genesis 3, 14, and 15. Sorry, Genesis 3, 14, and 15. If you don't have a Bible, go ahead and slip up your hand. The ushers will give you one. If you don't own one, just keep the one they're giving you. And I want to just, uh, again, recall from last week, as we look at the context here, uh, Adam and Eve have sinned. God comes into the garden and um, allows them the opportunity to repent, he he is very gracious. He's very loving. He he uh, first talks with Adam, gives him the opportunity to repent. He does not. He blames uh, Eve and God, and then he uh, deals with Eve, and she too does not admit her sin, but blames Adam. Or sorry, blames the serpent. So this is where we find ourselves now. Genesis three fourteen. The Lord God said to the serpent. Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. So three reasons for God's promise of hope we're going to be looking at this morning. Three reasons for God's promise of hope. First, we're going to see God's love for his world. God's love for his world. As you read through the scriptures, you see that God has a love for the lost, for those whom he has created. He does not leave us to the destruction that we choose, but instead promises to change things so that we might be saved. We see in these two verses, you're going to see this in these two verses. In addressing the serpent, God is addressing the one who is using the serpent, right? So as we look at this curse, we need to understand that, yes, the serpent, the actual snake, the, the, the creature that we still see slithering around today is judged. But there's not just a serpent, that, the, the snake that is being judged. It is also Satan. Uh, Maybe a helpful way to look at this, verse 14, you see more of the emphasis on the snake itself. and verse 15, you see more of the emphasis on Satan. So he says to the serpent, because you have done this. I just want us to be reminded this morning that God judges us based on what we do not on based on what we say we will do or what we hope to do, but he actually judges us based on what we do. And is, as we're going to see in this text, that his judgment is in accordance with the actions that we have done. We see here that um, the serpent, the, the, the snake, has deceived Adam and Eve through its cunning because it was crafty. If you look back at verse 1, we see that he was above all the livestock, all the beasts of the field. That he was crafty and he uses that to bring Adam and Eve into sin. So, he will be judged above all the other beasts and uh, of the field. Ross says this, all of creation would now be barred from the fullness of fertility and harmony, but the serpent more than all the rest, right? So the curse is going to, is now over all of creation, but the snake, the serpent will have a specific kind of curse. This curse that began on that day is still seen today, right? We still live under the curse. Life is still hard. Uh, the, the, this creation is subject to futility. Uh, there are still weeds in the gardens. You still have to work hard in order to get ahead. And it says in Romans eight twenty two that the whole of creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Because Christ has come, this will some one someday soon go, going to end. But for now, we still live under the curse. And so now the serpent is given its specific curse. It says, on your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. Now, we're not going to spend time thinking about, okay, well, did he have legs before? And, you know, like, w- what was that all about? Maybe we should just spend 20 minutes hypothesizing about that. We're not going to do that, okay? We're just simply told that the this, this serpent will go on its belly, slither around on its belly for the rest of its days, and dust it shall eat all the days of its life. Reminder that it will die now as a result of what it has done, and that it will eat the dust in correlation to them being tempted to eat of the fruit. There is now the eating of the dust. Dust, the slithering around, also are, are both associated with humiliation. Psalm 44, 24 and 25 says this. There's going to be a lot of different scriptures, and Matthew has been very gracious, and he's going to be putting these up as we go through, so you're not like exhausted by the time flipping around. But if you want to write these down, I really encourage you to do so. Psalm 44, 24 and 25, talking about humiliation. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? Now note, for our soul is bowed down to the dust, Our belly clings to the ground. And so this serpent will be humiliated for all of its days. Every time that we see a serpent, we should be reminded of God's judgment against it. The fact that the serpent reminds us of our enemy as well. Ross says this, the fact that humans will become dust again. uh, Sorry, he notes this also about dust. The fact that humans will become dust again and be the serpent's prey until the victory comes This posture and performance of the serpent will be a perpetual reminder to people of the temptation and the fall. We will return to dust. And this enmity that he's going to refer to in the next verse is reminded of that as well. So the serpent will be in this position all the days of its life. The serpent will continue to be an enemy of God's people. Ultimately, he's talking about Satan here. And, And even... The people of Israel, again, reminder, when did they receive these words? They, they received it in the wilderness. They get Genesis through Deuteronomy all at the same time. And so they learn about the serpent in the garden, but they also reminded that it is detestable to them when they think about the food laws. Leviticus 11.42, uh, whatever goes on its belly is detestable. And so they're, they're, to, they're to, uh, to be on guard against the snake, the serpent is what or sorry, the Satan is what is pointing to. And then he says this in verse 15, "I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel." There's a lot going on here. Uh, there's, there's, a, there's a term proto that's used of this verse. It is the first glimpse of the gospel. This is the first promise that God gives to to us as he judges Satan. There's, There's going to be enmity, it says, between Eve and the serpent, but not just between them, but between all the offspring of Eve and then all the offspring of Satan. And then in the end, that... The descendant of Eve will bruise his head. In other words, he will will destroy them, and Satan will continue to bruise his heel. So there's this enmity that's going to go on until the last day. We're going to read, and when we get to chapter 4, that sin is continually crouching at the door. that that sin is going to continually be present, that Satan will continually be tempting people to rebel against God. This will go on for all time, but there is one who's going to come and he's going to reverse that. We think about uh, this offspring. It's not going to be many. uh, Some translations use the word seed, one. There is one who is coming, who will destroy Satan. Who will that one be? This is the question that you're wondering from Genesis 3.15 all the way through until we get to the book of Matthew. Who will this one be? God gives us clues as we read through the Bible, but we do not know who will be. And then who are the offspring of Satan? Of course, we know from Ephesians 6, he's not by himself. There are principalities, there's rulers with him, powers of the air, demons, who stand with him, but ultimately it is anyone who stands in opposition to God who is with Satan. Jesus reminds us of this in John 8, 44. He says, you are of your father, the devil. Remember, he says this of the Pharisees. The Pharisees are like, we're, we're so holy. We're God's people. We're, you know, he, we're with him. And, and, and Jesus says this to them, you are of the, your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. 1 John 3, 8, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. Some people think there's like a third category, right? I'm just kind of neutral, I'm not on God's team, I'm not on Satan's team, I'm just on my own team. There is only two teams, all right? You're either with the Father or you're with the devil, you're with Satan. You're either with the Lord and part of his offspring or you are part of Satan's offspring is what we're being reminded here in Genesis 3. So as we think about Genesis 3, and we begin to to think about this promise, and we look ahead, right at, as I mentioned, Genesis 4, we see the battle beginning, right? Eve has a child, Abel, he's a good kid, right? He's with God. Cain, sin is crouching at your door, and it desires to have you. Satan is going to try to use Cain to destroy God's plan, and so Cain kills Abel. I guess that's it. God is defeated. Well, what happens? Seth is then born. And then through the line of Seth, there's the expectation that, that maybe the next one, maybe son's child will be the one who will come and defeat Satan. But things don't go real well. Get to chapter five, and then into chapter six, we're already at the point where God's like, I gotta destroy the earth, Wickedness is rampant. It looks like Satan has won, right? He has won this battle. He he has got all of God's creation against him. It's over. But there's a family. Noah and his family are spared. And they are saved through the flood. And, And God says, I'll never do that again. I'll never destroy the earth through a flood. We have the rainbow to remember that, that God will never do that again, he makes a covenant to mankind. But Genesis 8, we read what? The inclination of man's heart is still sinful. It's still there. You get to Genesis 11, they're trying to take the place of God again at, at the Tower of Babel, and, and God scatters them over the earth. Like, I mean, is this ever going to get good? Right? But then by Genesis 12, what? We're reminded God is love. He takes a pagan by the name of Abram, not a guy who was seeking for God, but he chooses Abram. He makes him his people. He makes him his child. He makes a covenant through him. And he says, through Abraham, all the nations will be blessed. So now there's hope. It's going to come through Abraham. And as he continue to read on, we read in Genesis forty-nine. Not just through Abraham, but it's going to come through Judah. There's going to be a, a, a Jeremiah. Sorry, Genesis forty-nine ten. That 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 through him there is going to be a king. God has a plan to save His people because of His love. And as we think about Genesis through Malachi, we see God's love for His people over and over again. That it is not his desire to destroy people. God is just, and he must judge sin. But this is not his default. In fact, his default is to be gracious, is to be loving. We're reminded of this in Ezekiel 33, 11. Ezekiel thirty-three eleven. he says this, Say to them, to Israel, As I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways, for why will you die, O house of Israel? Some of us need to memorize that verse. We think God loves to destroy the wicked. But what does it say? He takes no pleasure in destroying the wicked. He says in Ezekiel 18, 30 and 32, very similar. Ezekiel 18, 30 to 32. What a gracious God. What a loving God. You will be judged for your sin. However, if you repent, then you will be saved. He takes no pleasure in the destruction of the ungodly. Again, I, I bring this up often, but there's this kind of this false idea out there that, that God is like really angry and destructive in the Old Testament. And then in the New Testament, he's like, you know, like everybody do what you want. It's, I'm loving, do whatever, you know. I don't really care about what you do. Like, no rules. That's not, that's not in the scriptures, okay? I'm, I'm trying to help us to see that this morning. God with Israel, the people that he's chosen, he, he's super gracious, he's super loving. He's like, turn from your sin. And over and over again, we see them rebelling against God. And then they suffer the consequences of their sin. They're like, please forgive us, God. Please return. He returns. He, he restores them. This process over and over and over again until they finally are exiled. But he's not done with them yet, right? God is gracious to his people and he still has, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. When does that get said? While they're in Babylon, while they're in exile, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. So it's great to be Jewish in the Old Testament. Does God care about the Gentiles? Anybody read the book of Jonah? Why, why, did, why did Jonah not want to go to, to Nineveh? The Ninevites were wicked people. I mean, you, you, you get the hall of fame for wickedness. These folks were there. The, I mean, they, they, they weren't just a little evil. And God says, Jonah, I want you to go and proclaim to Nineveh that I'm going to destroy them. He's like, no, I don't want to go. Why? Why doesn't he not want to go? Well, we're told in Jonah 4.2, I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. I knew if I went and they repented, You would not destroy them. And I did not want that. I wanted them to be destroyed. They're wicked people. It's what they deserve. As all of us deserve. But Jonah didn't see that. Jonah wanted them to be destroyed. But God is a God of love. Steadfast love. And so he saves the people of Nineveh. This this group of Gentiles. God's love is just on display over and over and over again through the Old Testament. And as you read through, as I've already said, you start seeing these, these signs of who's the one to come. He's going to come from the line of Judah. Later we see that he's going to come from the line of David. That, that, that David is going to, to have someone from his lineage on the throne for all of eternity. And so the, we get to the point that, that there is this one to come and why is he coming? Because God is love. As we think about December, we remember that as generation after generation after generation come along, there's this young couple, their names are Joseph and Mary. Not, not, not a couple that the world would pick to, to give the savior of the world to be responsible for. But this is, who God chooses. Someone from the line of David, just as he promised. Just as we go all the way back to Genesis 3.15. Why is, why is this one coming from Eve coming? Note, note that she's coming from the line of Eve, which then highlights Isaiah 7.14, the virgin birth. She will come from woman, not from man, not from the line of Adam, born through the power of the Holy Spirit, but why is, why is he being sent? Everyone knows this verse, probably here, even if this is your first time to church. John three sixteen, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. It is again God's desire that man might have life. That they would not have to die for their sin. That if they would believe in Jesus, that is, place their faith and trust in him, that they would not have to die for their sins, but instead have eternal life. Because Jesus was born on this earth, this is what we celebrate at this season. Because Jesus came and lived on this earth, we can have hope and life today. He lived the perfect life. He, we read Genesis 3, 1, 2, 12, and we read what? Adam failed. We need a new Adam. And so that's what God does. He sends Jesus. He's the new Adam. He lives the perfect life. He never sins, not one time. He dies upon a cross. And as he's on the cross, my sin, your sin is placed on him. And then the wrath of God that has to come against all sin is not placed on you or I, but on him. And he pays the debt. This is why we can have hope. And anyone who believes that Christ has paid the debt for him and places their trust in him will be saved, will have eternal life. This is what God has done. And not only are we saved from eternal death, but we are saved from the power of sin in our life. The Holy Spirit has given us that we might say no to sin. Before then, you are slaves to sin. Even your, your perfect, you're not your perfect, your good works are sinful because they're done from a sinful heart. But because Christ has come, We are saved from the power of sin, from the power of death, and from Satan. We read over and over again, if we resist the devil and submit to God, that he will flee from us. When you're in Christ, Satan can do nothing to you. This was the promise that that Jesus would come and defeat Satan, and he has done so. He has done so so that we might have life. He has done so because of his life, or sorry, because of his love. As we think about God's love, he shows love to all mankind, even today. He sends sun and rain on both the just and the unjust, it says in Matthew five forty uh, five, 45. Blessed not because of their actions, but despite their actions. The kindness of God being given that they might repent of their sins. MacArthur puts it like this. God graciously holds back his judgment. He saves sinners in a physical and temporal way from what they deserve. To show them his saving character. That they might come to him and receive salvation that is spiritual and eternal. God's kindness is meant to lead us to repentance. When Jesus walked on this earth, we see that he came to seek and to save the lost. Luke 19, 10. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. And now we await his return the final defeat of Satan, the final removal of sin, the final remover, removal of death. But he has not yet returned. Why? He comes back to, again to because of his grace and his love towards the lost. Second Peter three eight and nine, but do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord, with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Do you see God's love for the lost? It's all through the scriptures. From that first day of the curse coming upon this earth until today, God's love is being poured out on this world. And God is saving people even this day, people who are becoming his children even this day. Isn't it incredible? God's love to, to a group of people who have rebelled and sinned against him. Not one of us deserved his salvation, and yet he has saved us. He's went to incredible efforts to save the lost. This morning, I want us to think about which group are you in? Are you in that group that's still unrepentant? You're still walking in your sin? You, you, still, you still have not recognized that God has, has sent his son to, 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 to replace, or sorry, to be a substitute for your sin? I wonder if some of you here this morning are still walking in your rebellion against God because you have a wrong picture of him. You see God as someone who is just ready to hammer, right? There's nothing that God loves more than smiting the wicked. That's what you believe, that you believe that that God just loves to destroy the wicked. That's but, but that, I, I hope you see this morning that God takes no pleasure in destroying the wicked. He loves you. Despite everything you've done against him. Every sin that you've committed against him. The things that you've said about him. He still loves you, and he cries out to you today and says and warns you, you will be judged for your sin, but today, if you would repent, I would forgive you. If you place your trust and hope in Jesus Christ, you could have eternal life today. I pray that everyone here this morning hears that. Some of you believe that while God might be a God of love, that he cannot possibly love you. You think that you've sinned too greatly, that there is no way that he can forgive you. You would love to believe that forgiveness and love can be yours, but how could God forgive someone like you? Again, I would remind you about the Ninevites. I would remind you about Paul, who murdered God's people, who had them in prison too, was making his life's mission to persecute the church. All those were forgiven as they repented and placed their trust in Christ. And if you would repent today, you too can have hope in him and rejoice in your salvation. The majority of you here this, this morning are in the second group. And I want us to be reminded of the lengths that God has went to in order to save the lost. If we're being honest, we don't have the same focus on seeing the lost saved. We, we don't have the same efforts to see the lost saved. And I, I want us to reflect the heart of God. I want us to reflect the love of God in our, in our day-to-day life and have the same heart for the lost that God has. As we think about this opportunity to, to hand postcards out to those who, who might at this season come to a Christmas service, why, why do we kind of have the emphasis like we do at this time of year? It's because people aren't freaked out by you inviting the church at this time of year. That's kind of the general rule, right? There's some kind of religiosity out there, and so they're like, eh, you know, maybe I'll mix it up this Christmas instead of doing what we've done every year, we'll go to church, there's an openness there, and, 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 and they, don't, they don't know that they're lost. They, they don't know, maybe necessarily, that, 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 that what Christ has done for them, but you put out the hope to them, and you invite them this Christmas. And if they won't come, then you just say, well, let's have a coffee sometime. I, I would love to talk to you about what Christ has done for me, right? Like, let us be witnesses. Let us proclaim the hope that, that, that they too might be saved, that they might be freed from their sin, from the power of Satan in their life. So God's love for his world, three promises, three reasons for God's promise of hope. Secondly, we see God's love for his children. God's love for his children. This morning, the majority of you here are his children because of what Christ has done. Because, because of the sacrifice that he's made, because he's opened your eyes to see who he is, you are his child. But some of you here this morning are doubting his love for you. You, you have begun to think about God's love in human terms. You, you think about your life, you think about the way that you, you have been responding to, to him day in and day out you you say you're going to do one thing and then you do the opposite you 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 your your heart is far from him and you believe at this point his heart must be far from you as well he must be so disappointed in you i mean how could he love you anymore i mean i mean you're you're supposed to be his kid you say you're his kid you say you're a christian but look at the way you live how, how could he love you But that's not how God's love is. God's love is steadfast. God's love is eternal, it's unchanging. If you're His child this morning, He loves you now as much as He's ever loved you. And He's saying to you the same as He did before, when before you knew Him repent, turn back to me, I'm here. Walk in my ways. Know me. This morning as his child, do you know of his love? Paul's prayer is my prayer for you this morning in Ephesians 3:14 and 19. Ephesians 3:14 and 19. I'm just going to read it. It's on the screen there. Paul says this to the church in Ephesus. "For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Now listen, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. You, you are grounded, you are rooted in love. The, the text that was read earlier in 1 John, you love because he first loved you. The only reason that you are able to love in any sort of way, that true way, is because you have been first loved by him. We, 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 our, our, our hope, our, our life is grounded in his love. And his prayer is that you would understand the completeness, the fullness of his love towards you. We see that the, the height, the depth, the breadth, the length. He, he's describing like, I want you to, to uh, just have a glimpse of understanding of what his love towards you is. that you might be filled with the fullness of God what is the fullness of God it is to have his love within you to love as he has loved us the love that surpasses knowledge Romans 552 5, It says, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. God's love towards us was sacrificial. He left his throne in heaven and he came and lived on this earth in lowly means so that you and I might have life. He gave himself up to God, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. He wants us to know the enormity and completeness of his love. John 15, 13, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. This is what Christ has done for us. One way to grow in your understanding of God's love for you is to understand how great of a sinner you really are. As you grow in your faith, as you grow in your knowledge of of the Lord, there's a funny thing that happens. You, You see your sin more and more and more. The closer you get to the light, the more you see how dark your heart really is. That what the scriptures say, that our first inclination is always towards sin, it's there. You, you, you understand that more and more and more so. And, you, and you, you cry out, thank you, Lord. Praise you that you were so gracious and merciful to me. I did not deserve it. And Jesus reminds us, you remember that he's in Simon's house. And this woman comes in and she's known as a, as a great sinner in the city. And she comes in and she's at Jesus' feet and and she's just weeping and and, and loving on Jesus. And and everyone's like, you know, does does Jesus know who this woman is? I mean, and and Jesus uses this opportunity to say, Simon, look, look what she's done for me. And she's done this because she has been forgiven much. Out of, the understanding of how much she has forgiven, she's been forgiven, she now loves much. And Simon, those who think that they have been forgiven little, love little. Now the point of this is not that that her sins are here and Simon's sins are here. It's the fact that Simon thinks he's a pretty good person. Simon doesn't see his sin as he ought to. Simon doesn't understand the fullness of his depravity and the richness of God's love towards him. And so it is for you and I. If you want to make much of God's love for you, it begins with you understanding how great your sin is, how hopeless your situation was apart from him. And God didn't simply just give you a leg up. Oh, you're almost there. Let me just help you up that last little bit. No, you were so far from him you would never have come to him apart from his grace and mercy towards you. Romans 5.8 reminds us that God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Every single one of us here this morning. The love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. May we grow in our understanding of it that we might love as he has loved us. And then it says this, 1 John three 1, 1 John 3.1, see what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. Have like, you ever stop and think about that? Think like, that like you get to be called a child of God? I mean it should it should never we should never cease to be in awe of that. Like what kind of love would take us from being wretched sinners, redeem us through his son's blood, and then make us part of his family. But this is what he's done. What incredible love he has for his children. And then, in case we are doubting whether or not that love will be there forever, whether or not we could somehow get away from His love, if maybe the, the circumstances in our life would dictate such that His love has been taken away from us, He reminds us in Romans eight thirty five to thirty nine that that can never be the case; that nothing can separate us from His love. Romans eight thirty five: Who shall separate us? From the love of Christ, shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword, should any of these separate us from his love? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long, we are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing can separate you from his love. Redemption this morning, if you have placed your hope and trust in Christ, do you believe that he loves you today? Are you in awe of his love towards you? Do you worship him for being a God who is love? Three reasons for God's promise of hope. God's love for his world, God's love for his children, then God's love for his glory. God's love for his glory. All of this brings him glory. We studied the the book of Romans um, last year and the year before. If you'll recall, we got to the end of Romans chapter 11, which is like 1 through 11 is like, how is it that wretched sinners like you and I could be saved? There's this, this, this beautiful picture of the gospel from Romans 1 through 11. And as he gets to the end of it, what does he say? Romans 11, 33. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments, how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor? Who, who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him, and through him, and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Amen. To Him be the glory forever. Amen. As we look back from Genesis 3.15 through to this day, we are reminded that salvation is, to, is from Him and it's for His glory. I was, I'm just uh, taking some time to go through the Gospel of Matthew right now in my personal devotions. And it's just, it's just incredible. When you read that genealogy, I know most of us are not like, like oh yay, genealogy, I can't wait to read that. But but I encourage you to do that in in this month. Genesis, or sorry, Matthew 1, the genealogy of Christ. It's it's such a a beautiful reminder that God is on his throne. That his purposes will not be thwarted. There's some names in there you're like, why 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 is that name in there? Like, Like there's some messy, this is a messy family situation going on here. Like like names like Tamar are in there. You guys remember the Judah situation? Sons are not great men. Not great men at all. Judah does wrong by Tamar, then he does wrong on that day into the market. And yet God redeems that situation and it is through Tamar that descendant. Descendants are passed on, That is, that, that, that Christ will come from that line. The woman's name's not even used in Matthew's genealogy. It's simply the wife of Uriah the Hittite. We, we know about what happened there. David sins against God by committing adultery with Bathsheba. It seems like Satan is winning in these situations, and yet God's purposes will not be thwarted. There are Gentiles in this lineage. Remember Ruth? Remember studying the book of Ruth? She's in there. Like like God's purposes will not be thwarted. He gets the glory. He gets all the praise for the salvation as we look back on this lineage and again we think about someone like Rahab is in there as well like who's expecting Rahab to be part of the promised one's lineage she, she grows up in Jericho right she's not part of Abraham's land right but she believes in God in his power She's repentant. She becomes a believer in God. And God makes her a part of the lineage. Incredible. And then we get to the most privileged parents in all of history, Joseph and Mary. Mary is found to be with child, comes from the Holy Spirit. Joseph's like, I guess if Mary's having a child, I'm going to divorce her quietly. And an angel comes and says to her, hey, 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 wait. What she's saying is true, and here's what I want you to know. She will bear, Matthew 121, she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. This is why He's coming to save his people from their sins. We're going back again to the promise of Genesis 3.15. And now in the womb is the one who will come, the person who will come to save his people from their sins. All glory goes to God for his plan of salvation. And then on that night, when Jesus is born, the angels come to the shepherds, and what do they say? Luke 2, 10 through 14. And the angels said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be assigned to you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest. And on earth peace among those with whom he is well pleased. Glory to God in the highest. All glory, all honor goes to him for his plan of salvation. Piper says this, We get the Savior, he gets the glory we get the good news of great joy. God gets the praise. This is God's design in sending his son. That's how he loves us. In Jesus coming to this earth and defeating sin, Satan, and death, we have now been reconciled to God. And as a result, we are able to do that what we were designed to do. We are able to glorify God. The Westminster Confession says this, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. This is what we get to do because of God's love towards us. No longer separated from him because of our sin, no longer enslaved to our sin, no longer under Satan but under him, we are now able to love him with all our heart, soul, mind and strength, and then to love the neighbor our neighbors as ourselves. In this we glorify him, enjoy him and enjoy him forever. What a plan. It's not done yet. If you read Revelation, we, we know the story's not over yet. But it's, it might as well be. Because the only thing that's waiting between now and then is the salvation of more people. I, I like to joke about this, but can we just go out this week and find that last person who needs to get saved? Tell him, or her, the good news, and then they can save, get saved, and then Jesus can return. And when he returns, it's not going to be a battle. It's going to be like over like that. All his enemies will be destroyed. And I pray that as he returns, you are found ready and, and excited to see him. There will be those on this earth that will be hiding under the rocks because of their sin, because of their wickedness, because of his judgment coming against them. But I pray that you will be those who will be praising and rejoicing that he is here and that the final victory has now come. Why has he done all this? Love for his world, love for his children, and love for his glory. And I ask the worship team to come up. And I want us to just just take a time to reflect this morning. I want you to to not be thinking about your neighbor or or your spouse or your child. I just want you to think about yourself here this morning. And I want you to just reflect on a few things here. Today, if you're an unbeliever, if you've never repented of your sin, if you've never placed your trust in him, then I want you to reflect on the fact that he still loves you that he will not be mocked that one day he will come and he will judge all sin and so would you listen to him this morning would you repent of your sin would you place your hope and trust in him and then experience his love forevermore choose life today repent of your sin and place your trust in him remember that god takes no pleasure in the destruction of the wicked but for the majority of you here this morning, I want you to, to reflect on how much he loves you. Maybe you just need to bow your head and, and just close your eyes. But just, I want, I'm going to read something and, I, and, I, and then I just want you to think about it. I'm going to do this several times. First, consider the first promise and worship him. Consider the steadfastness of the love of God that brought about the coming of Jesus and worship Him. Consider the love that sent Jesus to this earth and worship Him. Consider the humble life that Jesus lived in the love that he showed the lost and worship him. Consider Christ's suffering and death and resurrection and worship him. Consider that you were once lost, but that you have been now found and worship him. Consider this morning that God would save a wretch like you and worship him. Consider that you are now a child of God and worship him. And then lastly, consider that his love can never Be taken away from you and worship him. Oh Lord, we praise you this morning that you are a God of love. Lord, our lives would be hopeless. Our lives be full of pain and loneliness if it was not for your love God we thank you that out of your love you sent your son that we might be redeemed from our sin that we might be placed once again into fellowship with you God that we might become your children and live for you God, thank you for your love this morning. God, I would pray that everyone here knows it and is increasingly growing in their knowledge of it and that, Lord, they are worshiping you today as a result of it. Lord, you deserve all the glory, all the honor. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand.